I start selling my kidneys, I'll let you know. Okay, that's cool. Do I get a friends and family discount? (laughs) (laughs) You are in a maze of twisty little passages, all alike. Time to start a fire, crack open a can of tab, and settle in for Founder Quest. I thought originally that this podcast would be called something like hard technical decisions, which sounds pretty hard hitting to me. Like, I like that because I think of myself as like a, a dyed in the wool realist mm-hmm. who's unafraid to face hard facts, you know. But then we were talking about it in Slack, and it, it turns out that, well, some of the things that I was originally going to highlight as tough, hard technical decisions or mistakes, rather, were actually forms of technical debt that we kind of took on on purpose. There were things that we knew that we were, we knew what we were getting into, maybe not exactly to what depth we were getting to the, into them, but we, we knew that something was happening. And yeah, so it, this week's topic has kind of blossomed into something a little bit more interesting, I think. So yeah, like personally, running a business and being an engineer means that there's this sort of constant struggle between the engineer and me and the, the businessman in me. But what I mean by that is that there's this constant desire to want to do things the right engineering way, but then you always have to trade that off between, uh, you know, what is the the return on investment? Like what what are my business outcomes that I'm trying to achieve by doing this this engineering the engineer in you wants to achieve technical perfection but the business person in you wants to make money yeah exactly so i guess we should maybe go into like what is uh what is technical debt let's let's talk a little bit about technical debt and stuff like this in general and then we can maybe go into some specifics about our uh you know when i when i think of technical debt the first phrase that comes to my mind is like it seemed like a good idea at the time right i think you know it's those things that you do with good intentions uh that just over time didn't continue to scale uh which is you know just a normal kind of outgrowth of scaling or over time became an obviously bad decision based on new information so you just have to like change your mind and go back and fix it yeah, I, I tend to also kind of throw maintenance costs in there. Like there's there's like extra things that you have to do that ca- kind of come with the technical decisions that you make. And um, and so like things like, um, you know, like putting off, like deferring some, some things like maintenance costs, like for instance, like on rails, like a rails upgrade, for instance. Um, I know if you kind of, you can kind of like get behind on those or like push them down the road um, and um, those can kind of build up and turn into like a large overhead that you have to think about all at once, which to me is, is technical debt. And there's all kinds of maintenance costs, uh, I think, associated with software or infrastructure. That's interesting because my take on technical debt is maybe a little bit more specific. I've always considered technical debt as a way to buy time with shitty code, right? Mm-hmm. When we first launched Honey Badger, I felt that uh, the the market was super ripe for a competitor in the space. So I felt like we really needed to ship something out very fast. And you know, as a result, we made some decisions that made us uh, able to get to market much more quickly than we would have otherwise. But then maybe, maybe you know, a year or two later, we came to regret those decisions. Maybe we didn't really regret them. Maybe we uh, just had to come back and clean them up a little bit. Um, so one thing that we did that I think falls definitely into the category of technical debt is that when we when we started, well, our, our service um, for people who don't know is a um, exception monitoring service, right? We have a little snippet of, or it's not a snippet, it's a, a library that uh, goes into your application and it sends us information whenever errors happen. And what we did when we first started out was we actually uh, kind of, you know, use the library of the main competitor, which was 
totally legal because it was MIT licensed. And we always knew that we were going to replace we were going to replace this with our own library. And we got a little bit of flack for it. But in the end, I think it was sort of the right decision. What do you guys think about that decision? I think it, it uh, I mean, it definitely bought us some time of not having to like figure all that stuff or reinvent that wheel. Basically, since it was a pretty well established pattern. Um, and if you look at those same libraries today, um, of all the, you know, everyone who does this basically, um, they're, they're pretty much all doing, you know, they're all basically copies of each other. Um, maybe not direct copies, but they're basically doing the exact same thing. It's a pretty well established, uh, pattern of code. So it definitely helped us, uh, get to market quicker. And like you said, it's MIT license. So we included attribution and, and, um, all that stuff. Yeah. I guess we should say it was, it was MIT licensed before we did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they changed the license, which so, I don't really, I don't really blame them for, but, uh, it took a while. Like Josh, you were the one who was in charge of version two of the gym, mm-hmm. like our big version of the gym that that was a hundred percent developed by you. Right. How long did that take? That took a while, didn't it? Yeah, it took it took a number of months. Uh, it was not a small project. I, I know by the time um, by the time we got to that point, um, obviously there there were a, a number of reasons we wanted to uh, to rewrite that code or reimplement it. We wanted to uh, kind of custom tailor some things to our particular service. By that time, we had made enough decisions uh, with the service where we kind of knew where we wanted to go, and we could we could kind of bring that to the client side. Um, and it made sense to to redo it. And uh, it also gave us the opportunity to rethink some of the decisions that um, we didn't get to make as a result of using that code from someone else up front. So that that probably added a little time to the project. But I think overall, it, it was um, useful to us. Yeah, so it saved us several months, maybe coming out coming out of the gate. I think like it would have been... I mean, we obviously wouldn't have started with probably all the features that came with it initially either. So I think that a lot of the time it probably saved would have it, it saved us. It would have been incrementally over, you know, over the first year or two um, of building the product that we didn't have to really think about building in or coming up with how this thing should work. It just kind of worked out of the box um, initially anyway. We no longer support the uh, the original notifier, but mm-hmm. like how long do we keep support of that in our application? Do we even still, do we still have that? Probably too long. I, I think we, we still have some code for it. I don't know that anyone's actually using it. Like if I sent an, if I sent an error payload from like 2000 and <laughs> 2012, would it work? That's it. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> There's a good chance it would actually work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. I, I think we do have the, um, what, one of the, the, like the way we supported it was we basically implemented the same API, um, server side. And then the gem just basically, you know, you change the host name that it connects to and, and it works. Yeah. And I think you became really well acquainted with some of the, the, problems with this original library, which started out, I guess, as a much simpler thing. You know, all legacy software grows and becomes more complicated and it's always kind of nice. And it's, uh, I guess engineers always want to rewrite their big thing. And you kind of got a chance to do that because we started with something that uh, we knew we were going to have to re- rewrite in the beginning. I like what you, what you said there about technical debt from the perspective of it's a shortcut that we choose to make that, you know, saves us some time. Uh, you know, but one of those uh, examples, I think, that from our experience of from that I was talking about, like it's you know it's a good idea at the time, was when we started off with um, Backbone, right? And we had to, oh, no, you're not going to remind me of this, man. <laughs> <laughs> this is I blocked this out. 
<laughs> but those are fun times. I mean, like everyone at the time, uh, web developers, it was like the new hotness to build a single page app. Like React wasn't a thing yet, as far as I know. And so like it was, it was this brave new world, right? Let's try this new thing. And so we, 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 you, you star actually, because you did all I'll, the jobs. I'll own it. Stuff. I'll own it. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, Whatever. Yeah, I make mistakes, man. I'm not perfect. Yeah. Well, and as, as <laughs> developers, I mean, we don't want to fall behind the times. We want to be able to learn and grow and, and stay current and all that. So. I'm sure it yeah, was a fun like frontier yeah. for you to explore. Well, that's that's the point I was trying to make that it wasn't it wasn't a mistake, right? It was a good idea at the time. Like it sounded like a good idea because it was fun to build and it was what other people were doing and it was a good experiment and it worked. It's just over time we decided eh, it's not working so well for us, and so we had to go back and replace that. Oh, see, I'm much I'm much more harsher in my uh, <laughs> oh <laughs> I'm much harsher in my my evaluation of my decision there. Uh, oh. I think it did sound I, like a good idea at the time, but it was yeah. a wrong decision. I I, <laughs> I tend to agree. I, I think it was the I think that for us it was the wrong decision just because what we know now of the um, the extra overhead that it takes to maintain, especially at the time um, like Backbone was not. Um, it had a lot to like work out that like modern, like today's frameworks have solved, I think. Um, so there was a lot to struggle with in addition, but you know, that compared to if we had just gone with basically vanilla JavaScript in the rails way, which isn't flashy, but works year after year. I think that's what would have made it a better decision for us to kind of go the more standard approach just because we're small team and, um, and everyone knows. I mean, maybe I should back up and give a little perspective for people who are listening, so when we first started out, we wanted a really awesome application. And so we chose to build it as a single page application using this library, Backbone JS. This was before React. This was before you know Angular, Vue, any of the modern uh, front-end libraries. So the problem with building our application uh, as a single page application using Backbone wasn't necessarily that it was hard to build using Backbone. The problem was that... Uh, we had built this system, which only one person, me, knew how to sort of use and work with. And so as time went on, you know, I had to move on to other things because we're three developers. We're all doing a lot of different things. We all have to be able to interact with all parts of the system. And it became just more and more obvious that it was very hard for everybody to be able to work with this uh, front-end application code that I had built just because it was so complex. It was like its own separate application having a separate single page application was incredibly difficult to maintain for three full stack developers and no independent, you know, full time front end guys. So that was our, our main mistake. So I guess I guess maybe this one sort of canceled out whatever time we <laughs> we came <laughs> from from using the uh, the airbrake gem originally, huh? It probably did. Can I just can I just make one point? Um and I might I might probably get on a soapbox here, so I'll try not to that's fine. Do it. Um, do it. So if we we went backbone I if you look today at the um the number of people that are building backbone applications how many would you would you say that are uh, are doing that new backbone applications exactly n- n- like, nobody nobody like i i mean it seems to me that anyone who is building a backbone application back then is probably ported to a different framework entirely i would i would guess like react or something like that you know, if you're going to use the latest hot, you know, hot front end thing, um, there's a good chance that you're going to want to use the next hot thing that comes along to replace it. Okay, and Josh, I- no, no, no. <laughs> so we've got to fight about this, right? Backbone was the uh, way, right? Yeah. Backbone was the way. It was the way right. to write front end apps. And mm-hmm. it turned out 
we were just wrong, you know? Um, <laughs> and then it turned out that Angular was the way, right? right. Uh, so but you, you know what? Angular. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. So uh, still wrong. Uh, now, uh-huh. uh, now React. But I'm pretty well, sure... React is definitely the way, though. I mean, we I'm can pretty, all agree no. on that, right? It's, yeah, 100%. Okay. Um, meanwhile, you know, like... Um, you know, JavaScript and Rails still works. Um, it's maybe not, you know, it's not super fancy. Maybe if you're an old man, Josh. <laughs> well, maybe I am an old man star. <laughs> <laughs> I'm older than you, though, so. <laughs> well, I'm, maybe we're both old men then. In any case, uh, Rails and JavaScript has treated us pretty well. You know, I think we could all agree it's treated us pretty well over the years um, in that we all know it. It's all basic, you know, it's built on basic web technologies that don't really have a whole lot of overhead. There's a little bit, but comparatively it's, um, it's done pretty well for us, I think. And so the, the punchline for this, the, the end result was I went back, I ported the whole uh, single page application into sort of a vanilla rails application with uh it's got a pretty extensive amount of JavaScript layered on top of it, but for the most part, it works without JavaScript. I think that's the perfect thing for us because it's easy for us to maintain. It's easy for us to understand and you know onboard people who need to work on it. And then frankly, frankly, I don't think our application is a very good fit for a single page application. Why? Because, well, uh, a single page in our application has a huge amount of data um, that we have to go in and sort of extract and format and everything. And just sending that over the wire and having that happen front end is just kind of weird to me, you know? Yeah. yeah and the, the other thing that I, I've told people in the past is that the, the usage pattern of, um, of how people like to um, interact with Honey Badger is our strategy is to keep people out of Honey Badger for the most part in that like it's it's kind of issue based. So if if they get a notification that an error has happened, then they want to come and look at Honey Badger to see what the error is and, and debug it. Um, but other than that, ideally they're not going to have to be like in there all the time. Um, hopefully they're going to be able to be working on code and deploying features and that sort of thing. Um, so it's not the sort of app that people have open in a tab like you know twenty four seven or whatever. So what they're doing is usually clicking on a link from like a notification. And landing in Honey Badger, and if you're um, putting all of your uh, like, if all of your performance benefits are being loaded up front, so like with a single page app, a lot of the time, you'll uh, you'll load a lot of the application logic up front, and then if you're in the app for a long time, it seems faster, right? I think yeah, yeah. People get in, get out, right? Instead of loading up all this data and all the supporting structure that a single page app requires, like load the world kind of thing. You know, we just load the page they want to view, the data they want to see, and then they move on with their life, right? You're right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, on, on that note, on the data thing, I think um, maybe maybe a better example to make my point uh, about would be like Postgres, right? We decided early on to go with Postgres as our data store. Uh, it's been a great decision. We're still using Postgres, but we've changed how we use it over time, right? Because initially, we stored everything in Postgres. Yeah, we just we, had a basic Rails CRUD app. Right, yeah. our yeah. highly data-intensive application where we handle thousands of inbound errors and everything. Originally, our first version of that was a Rails CRUD app with yeah. everything, every, all the default Postgres settings, pretty much everything vanilla. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We didn't even have a queue in the beginning, right? We just we we took a request from a payload, but put it right in the database. Straight Boom, to the database. Trip, you know, you know. But over time, that didn't scale, and so we had to make changes. We had to add a queue. 
And then over time, we decided, you know what, maybe putting these 10 megabyte payloads inside of the database isn't a good idea anymore. And so we split that out to S3, right? So then we just sort of reference to that in Postgres. How big was our database? I remember it got pretty big. That was about two terabytes. Yeah, that was right after I did a uh, RailsConf talk about scaling up your database. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like everybody talks about, you know, scaling out your database and moving things onto different servers and whatnot. But, you know, just buy a bigger database is cool. Which we did a few times. Yeah, we did and that a couple of times. I think the real breaking point for me was when I realized it would take a full 24 hours to restore a database, you know, to production if we had to do a full restore. I'm like, you know what, we need to do something about that. Well, doing that, splitting out those larger payloads has allowed us to maintain that scaling strategy for for Postgres for the most part. We're still, we're not sharding or, or anything like that. We basically are just buying a bigger database. Um, it's just yeah. that our database happens to be smaller. Yeah. One other thing that uh, I think I pushed for this one too, in, that in the, the beginning, I didn't really want to be on AWS. AWS because at the time, at the time we launched Honey Badger, there were all these sort of really public AWS outages. It just seemed kind of sketchy to me. Um, not they hadn't launched this entire ecosystem of cloud services. It was pretty much just EC2. So we decided to go with a um, with a dedicated server or you know several dedicated servers at a host that I don't know. Can we legally name them? No, it's not. Um, it'd be nice. Okay, if we legally name them, we're going to 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 get sued because they were so <laughs> incredibly terrible. <laughs> you know, I think that was a great decision early on because a it was cheap, uh, b it was easy to get started. And they did support our needs for quite a while. It was only once we actually scaled a bit that we discovered the limits of their service, right? So they were they were great for a while uh, until they weren't, right? So, yeah. I mean, okay, it wasn't they were pretty speed. bad. Yeah. At, at the end there, it was like, oh, pulling teeth and stuff. But uh, so, yeah, it wasn't a, a universally bad experience. No, but it took us forever to uh, to get off of them. We eventually moved everything over to EC2. We use a lot of uh, AWS services along with it. And how long did that take you, Ben? Like that, that took a really long time. Yeah. Didn't it? I mean, I think several months, you know, the thing about AWS is everything has to be automated. Like when you're using EC2, those instances can disappear anytime. And the one good thing about that hosting company was that those servers just didn't disappear, right? They were rock solid. They lasted forever. So yeah. like automation isn't so important when you know your server is going to be there, but they, they disappeared occasionally <laughs> for a few seconds at yeah. a time. <laughs> but they were still there, but we just couldn't right, see them. Right. So, so, I mean, it took a little, uh, definitely a bit of work to move to AWS. So, you know, if we were to do it again, I think, yeah, the math might be a little different. Like knowing how long, how much work it took to actually make that change, uh, having done that up front would have been nice. But then how long would that have delayed our launch? That's that's the question. Do you think it would have delayed our launch to launch on uh on like EC2 no, and AWS. Because they probably would have done it naively, right? We're like, oh, let's just throw some instances. It's fine. And then like one day <laughs> they would have disappeared and we'd be like, oh, crud, it's not fine anymore. Yeah, right? I think so. that's exactly what we would have done. <laughs> <laughs> that that does sound like us. Did I mention that we've learned a few things? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and one of the benefits of AWS for us now is that we have this super awesome scaling setup where if we have more notices come in than we can handle, we just spin up more servers and it all just kind of happens automatically like yeah one of the most intense evenings of my life was where uh, where we're having we're in the middle of all these it was some sort of scaling problem with uh our old servers our old dedicated servers and i was at some conference that night i couldn't sleep i eventually finally got to sleep 
I was woken up by like an alarm call from my home alarm company saying somebody was trying to break into my house. So then like I call my wife who's at the house and we're, you know, freaking out and she's trying to figure out what's going on. And then, okay, that's done. So I go back to sleep and then I get a call or I get a page from, cause I was on call. Um, I get paged by our, um, you know, pager duty setup because the database is like, is acting weird or something. And then, okay, get, get that done. And then an hour later, you know, I go, I go back to sleep for an hour and I get up and I have to give a presentation. I'm like the first person in the morning and it's it, on my personal time zone. I, it's like 4 a.m. So that's like, that's my so that, <laughs> absolute nightmare. Oh man. And it, it turned out okay. The, com- the, the presentation went okay, I think. But man, that was, that was so, pretty stressful. You know, one of the lessons learned from that is now we don't assign on call when you're traveling for a conference, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know if I've heard that, like knew it was that bad, but sorry, Star. <laughs> oh, it's okay. That, it wasn't like that all the time. It just yeah. was this perfect storm of... Uh, yeah, we've, we've uh, definitely had the benefits from the automation work that we had to do for Amazon. Like, so now we don't get pages in the middle of the night when we're traveling on a conference, right? We, it just handles itself. Like We don't hardly get any pages at all. It just works. A plus would do again. In order to get to this point though, um, you know, we, obviously we, we didn't have, we weren't to this point back then, or we would have built it like this in the first place. And so what we have today is, has come out of a lot of the, the uh, mistakes and the experience that we've gained um, from doing things the wrong way. And so I assume we, we would have probably made our share of mistakes um, on any platform that we would have started on um, and would still be here talking about like what we did wrong and what we wish yeah. we would have done in the, in the beginning. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it, part of it comes down to like, what is the pragmatic thing that gets the job done today versus what's the ideal solution that I would love to have for the next 10 years. Right. You know, when we, when we started, it was really one server. It was cost us $75 a month and boom, we launched because we had. Yeah. And that was our, that was our entire infrastructure cost. Yeah. Totally. Data, everything. We, we had no idea. Right. <laughs> now we spent what, like six crazy. figures on, yeah. on uh, servers. Um, but you know, at the at the time when we launched, we had no idea if people would actually pay us for the service, right? We were just like, we don't know, will this work? Let's do the cheapest thing that could possibly work, right? And uh, as soon as we started making a hundred bucks a month, then we started talking about, okay, now can we buy another server? <laughs> I remember thinking you were such a baller for dropping like seventy five bucks a month on that <laughs> server, Ben. Good times. Good memories. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of the idea of building like building to solve your problem today, not building to solve your problem of like five or 10 years from now or something, you know, like, and I think that kind of goes into what you were saying about taking the pragmatic approach. Um, and that's kind of part of pragmatism is that like, you're not, you're not like solving for needs that you don't have yet. Basically. I was thinking about that, that approach when it comes to software development, like less, less from the outside, more from the software side and, you know, the, the concept of you aren't going to need it. Right. Like it took me a while in my career to really, I think, accept that, that particular mentality that um, you don't need to build in all the extensibility from day one, right? You, you can just build the thing that works today and then 
rebuild it when you need to or if you need to, as opposed to like spending a whole bunch of time up front trying to anticipate every potential variation, you know, that you have to deal with. And that that, that also has helped us uh, focus on our customers because we didn't build a bunch of stuff that we thought they wanted. We waited and built things that they specifically told us they wanted. So yeah. if it doesn't do exactly what they want from day one, at least they can tell, tell you what they want it to do uh, versus you kind of making those decisions for them. So yeah, in the end, you all guys think that that hey, like how, here, how do you right? think we did? Think we did okay? <laughs> yeah. we're, still making, we're still in business, so yeah, I think we did all right. <laughs> yeah, we're still learning, but um, that's like we were saying, like, you know, that kind of goes with the territory. For the past several years, we've sort of kicked around the idea of doing another product, and I think this is going to be maybe something that we have to watch ourselves on if we ever do develop another product that we want to do everything right and we want to apply all the lessons that we uh, we learned while building Honey Badger. But we also maybe need to realize that we're not going to be able to get everything right from the beginning. And that it's okay to, uh, to do things with, to take on a little bit of technical debt yeah. at the beginning. All right. Well, it was really great talking with you guys about the whole technical debt thing. And uh, I'll catch you next week. And we can talk about something else that sounds good. Cool yeah, and like uh, fun. ThunderQuest is a weekly podcast by the founders of Honey Badger. Zero instrumentation, 360-degree coverage of errors, outages, and service degradations for your web apps. If you have a web app, you need it. Available at honeybadger.io. Want more from the founders? Go to founderquestpodcast.com. That's one word. You can access our huge back catalog or sign up for our newsletter to get exclusive VIP content. FounderQuest is available on iTunes, Spotify, and other purveyors of fine podcasts. We'll see you next week.